popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360-degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task, but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Nice headphones. And I can see a dog in the background. That's right. Sign of a modern office. Ah, he's about to jump on the sofa. Look how bad he behaves, that dog is. So he's naughty, he doesn't realise he's been watched. He thinks your back's turned and you can't see him. Okay, should we do? Should we start, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. So we're expecting a few more people to join us, but um, we record these sessions. So um, we, you know, we like to to share the kind of uh, burning questions salespeople have, and, and we use it to kind of promote uh, a wider sense of community. But um, you know, thanks for joining. Um, if you've got any questions at all, please, you know, put it in chat or we can unmute your microphone, but it's a great opportunity to to throw question to questions to Phil. And um if it's anything like our last session, the questions really do range uh, in depth and breadth. Um whilst you do that, a bit of context for today's webinar. Um we're so excited kind of to speak to other sales professionals and to hear about what's on your mind. Um, we have a whole hour spare. Um, so if, you know, we can take up the entire hour, um, but, it, you know, if we get through the questions quickly, then obviously we won't keep your time for longer than necessary. But really the purpose of this is we we want to keep building a community of sales professionals and we want to try and engage with as many people as possible so we we are doing these amas every month um it's actually we get quite a bit of feedback post ama um because my colleague eddie you know uses this content and promotes it on socials and, and things like that so it really does spur a, a kind of an engaged community um please tell colleagues and friends to join if you see that there's value in taking part in these. Eddie's going to put a URL into the uh, registration form in chat. 
And um, again, just trying to build up this sense of community. If you're interested in joining it in a more of a formal capacity, uh, please do submit um, your details to that and you can be part of the early adopters as we kind of drive to grow a community of sales professionals. Um, we have, like last time, been sent a few questions in advance to this webinar, but perhaps I can um, perhaps I can kick things off if that's right, Phil. That's fine. So this is quite a <laughs> this is quite a challenging question, but I enjoyed receiving it actually. Um, the question is. Is there a difference in the way Chinese lead organizations than in the rest of Europe? The um, Well, it's very interesting you should ask this question, <laughs> Will, but one of, the, uh, one of the people that I was involved in when I did my um, doctorate all those years ago was um, a guy called George Yip, and he's written quite a number of interesting books on the topic of global account management. And he's been a professor at London Business School, and then he went to a business school in Rotterdam, and he's now based out of uh, America. And he is um, about to publish a book, um, not a book, an article on in Harvard Business Review, uh, based on some research that three academics have done on uh, current leadership practices specifically contrasting uh, Chinese leadership styles with those that we are more used to seeing over here in, in Europe and, uh, and the USA. And a very short um, sort of outline of some of the findings of the research is quite interesting because we speak on our master's programs about uh, Julian Birkinshaw and um, the post-knowledge era in which we're now living, where the leadership characteristics of successful organizations are, are kind of based around managing what, what he calls adhocracy and democracy. And I think that some of the findings that George Yip is, is coming across is that uh, the Chinese management systems, particularly of their large global kind of businesses, lent itself very much to operationalizing adhocracy in quite an innovative way, um, where they distribute autonomy and power to uh, smaller units of decision makers throughout their organizations and can therefore affect change more quickly. Um, so I think what's going to be interesting, and I, I don't know the details of, of the research that's done, but I'm rather intrigued uh, and will be intrigued to sort of learn more about this because, uh, of course, it's um, it's always interesting to compare and contrast different approaches to leadership, you know, from um, from region to region, from culture to culture. And I think that um, I think it's going to provide an interesting addition to the work that we're all already familiar with, with Dr. Julian uh, Birkinshaw's work on sources of competitive advantage. So, yeah, I think there, there are differences, but it's mainly around the way that they approach power and uh, adhocracy. 
Uh, and for those that don't know, maybe it will be useful to define what you mean by ad hocracy. Yes, academics have got this knack of coming up with words that we're never quite sure what they mean. Um, ad hocracy is, is looking at structures of management which, uh, which come together in an ad hoc fashion, um, which source uh, teams of people from across different functions of a business to be able to affect a more agile way of working. And it's very different to the more hierarchical structures that we've been used uh, used at in the past. And it, it's very, it's very um, akin, if you like, to this whole concept of agile leadership and being able to um, create structures and processes inside organizations to be able to make decisions very quickly and effectively. Um, but I think what China are doing, it, according to Professor Yip's uh, research, is affecting that ad hocracy change perhaps more efficiently than leadership practices that we currently see in Europe. It's really, it's really slightly interesting. Acad slightly mm -hmm. academic, isn't it? This start of this AMA, Wills, but uh, well, it actually goes into it segues quite nicely into the question I had for you, and I always like to put you under the spotlight when I have right. this opportunity. Okay. Um, so, so as we know, kind of productivity has been in the news quite a lot recently, um, especially in the context of UK's productivity not really being uh, where it needs to be. And um, we kind of, if you read around it, we haven't really recovered since the 2008 financial crisis in, in comparison to other uh, kind of G7 countries. And, um, and then I, I looked at the latest Harvard Business Review um, uh, journal that we we subscribe to. And uh, the leading article in that is all around busyness, but it's all around productivity, really, is how, how do you ensure productivity? It sounds to me, from what you were saying about Chinese leadership styles, they are um, operationalizing ad hocracy um, <laughs> to become more productive workforces and and so okay if that's the context my question is how can how can managers ensure a more productive workforce and per perhaps you've already addressed part of this maybe we should done, be following I, are we talking generally or are we talking about about sales specifically i mean i uh, well in the in the context of myself and uh, in the context of sales yeah yeah i mean i I'm not an economist, so I I don't quite know what goes into the way productivity is calculated. But um, it it's clearly been um, an issue, uh, certainly for the UK, uh, for you know for quite some time, maybe fifteen, maybe fifteen twenty years. That there's been no discernible improvement in the productivity of the country. Um, and uh, this is of some concern for, um, you know, the economists and also the politicians in terms of how we drive uh, GDP, um, you know, for the country. But one of the things that that doesn't get mentioned by politicians, which which 
makes me question what are the levers that are used to measure productivity is the role that sales has in driving productivity. Um, you know, it kind of makes sense if GDP is a reflection of the, you know, the the gross domestic product that is being generated in the 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 country, that one of the levers for driving GDP up is going to be sales and revenue. And if that's the case, then why isn't there more being spoken about it in political circles about the the role that sales play in driving productivity? If we can sell more, if we connect well, we hear about it in the in the sense of exports. And, you know, um, if we can export more, we'll become perhaps more productive. And but but as a general word, we do, we don't hear politicians use the word very often, if we can sell more, it'll improve productivity. Um, But it's a a big topic in sales. I mean, we quite often hear interesting statistics about, you know, the percentage of sales force that meets quota is is often quite, you know, is quite low. We often hear that it's as much as 60% of a sales force doesn't, doesn't hit, you know, targets. And so if you look within the domain of sales, there, there's got to be huge opportunities to increase the productivity of Salesforce by the way in which we might leverage technology or leadership in order to drive higher performance. And I think this is, um, you know, this is a, a big question that sales leaders need to need need to be concerned about, in my view, which is. Mm-hmm. How can we get more from the resources that we have available um, in order to meet kind of revenue growth objectives or revenue objectives Mm. kind of moving forward? But I I think there's all sorts of ways in which one can start to explore areas to be more productive. But it's it's a huge question for us. I don't know if any of you Sorry, it was a bit too broad, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, one one thing you you mentioned or you touched upon is around time management um, and having an idea about you. Maybe you can comment on where do the most um, most successful sales practitioners um, spend their time, and what what kind of activities do they? Um, what are the most high value activities that a salesperson can do if there's only a set amount of time that we all experience? How should they be structuring or prioritizing their time? I mean, there's some quite interesting um, research done around, you know, where do star sales leaders spend their time versus those that don't uh, reach targets uh, or sort of don't perform quite as well, you know, with their team. So if we start start by just looking at the leadership kind of angle first, then the kind of areas that star leaders tend to spend more time than average sales leaders is going to be around strategizing, territory planning, territory management, making sure that the plans are properly in place. Uh, they'll spend much more time working with their salespeople in early sales sales cycle opportunities and not just be there for salespeople at the at the you know, when deals are due to be closed, they tend to spend more time coaching their sales teams rather than um, a proper coaching as opposed to sort of micromanaging around uh, spreadsheets and and data and statistics. So 
there's been you know quite a lot of research in terms of where where managers need to be kind of spending their time when you start to look at the data of how much face to face time do salespeople spend actually talking to customers it's it's quite low i mean it it varies from sector uh sector to sector and you know one must question the amount of non productive kind of admin time that sales teams seem to be spending their time on and a lot of that's driven with the micromanagement attitude of of the leaders to whom they report into mm. um so yeah i mean depending on which level we're talking about there are different levers that can perhaps be pulled and adjusted but i i, I think i'm most excited about the role that some of the emerging technologies will play in making life easier for salespeople to get in front of customers and to you know, spend more of their time doing what 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 they should be doing, which is you know obviously selling to customers. Yeah, Philip agrees. Um, he's just put into chat. Planning is a key area for greater productivity in sales. I also suspect that many companies don't know where their star performers slash leaders spend their time yeah that's uh that's a really good point yeah we don't we don't come across um much current data um which goes into this analysis of where time is being spent it tends to be um you know research projects that are carried off maybe once every five years or so we start to see what the stats kind of tell us but I, I agree with you yeah Phil it's not often that you find organizations are really closely monitoring um, where sales managers spend their time on the master's program that we run we get managers to to actually bring to us the data of where they spend their time and that for us is a a regular source of information and it becomes a debate that we have with the master's cohorts about where they spend the time. And we link it, um, the data they produce to some of the research we've seen in the past, particularly produced by Gartner. Um, and we also link that kind of where you choose to put your time is influenced by, by your values and belief system. So it also links for us around you know, what is the purpose of a sales leader? What kind of results do they want to achieve for their team? How important is it for them to achieve results from everyone in their team moving forward? But yeah, there's probably an opportunity for us to do more up-to-date uh, research in this topic, actually, through our students. Yeah, That's a great, great point, Phil. Thank you. I think we should. I just wanted to, to pick up on, on one more thing you said, Phil, um, which is around... You're really excited about what technology can do um, to to kind of, I guess, enable salespeople to, you know, referencing back to the productivity, I guess. Um, but what, have you seen anything recently that you are starting to realize the impact it could potentially have for salespeople? Well, I don't know if I, I can... Um, name any sort of specific um, applications, if you like. But uh, I mean, one of the ones that 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 we're beginning to see a lot of value from is is um, is IntraHive, which actually measures relationship capital. And 
the kind of data that we can get from using IntraHive is enabling us to um, recognize the network of contacts we have through um, organizations with whom we deal. I mean, I think, Will, you can probably speak a lot lot better on this subject than I can because you're much closer to the data. But the kind of example you gave earlier in the conversation about Luke me, meeting up with Lucas was an interesting one, which is perhaps in part influenced by IntraHive. But this is just one, uh, just one, you know, piece of a quite a large jigsaw puzzle. Um, you've got the ability to look at sentiment analysis and conversations to, to perhaps give you a better feel of the propensity of buyers of products um, to buy. Um, um, you can get better data around probability of sales cycles using those kind of technologies, which, uh, which are available. And, you know, I think that that all of these technologies, um, you know, whether it's HighSpot or HubSpot and in, in terms of being able to direct your marketing campaigns more in a more focused way, all of these are, are there to enable salespeople to become more effective. Um, and I, I really am looking forward to the time when the systems are, are built around the salesperson rather than around the sales manager um, so much. Uh, you know, I think it's if you can make life easier for salespeople to sell, that's got to lead to better productivity. Mm. Um, and for, you know, and, and, and as a consequence of that, for managers to spend much more time looking at data and trends to be able to spot, you know, uh, when you look across the sales organization where salespeople perhaps can be better directed or where best practice is happening with a number of your salespeople, perhaps not with others. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think we're going to see a, a really interesting uh, advancement of technologies that are built specifically to enable salespeople to sell more. So I was very unhappy that we saw, we've got this question submitted to us. Oh, um, what's that? <laughs> that Gartner Research in 2021 said that 72 percent of buyers want a sales rep free experience. And in 2022, Gartner Research says it's now 83% that B2B buyers would prefer ordering or paying for a service through digital commerce. How, as a salesperson, should I react to this? And how does it influence in the way that I sell now? Yes, it's quite interesting. And, and I think if you dig deeper into that research, uh, I think that it also shows how the age demographic um, is influencing some of that data. Um, I think with the, um, I think it's millennials who are much, much, you know, more digital savvy and, you know, they, they prefer that kind of method perhaps of doing their own research online and not engaging with salespeople. Um, so how as a salesperson should I, I react to this? And I think that it's not all altogether kind of negative in a sense you know if it's possible for buyers to buy solutions without having to engage with salespeople, i i would have thought that you know that that's not a bad thing because you're meeting the needs of those buyers um through a particular type of of channel um which 
means that the sellers can spend more time, perhaps more quality time, focused on customers who do want that interaction, uh, uh, who do want those kind of relationships. I think, I think what's interesting is that in a world, and we've talked about this quite a bit in the past, in the world that's changing very quickly, buyers don't always have the answers. And the only way they're going to find answers to particular problems that they have is through a heightened um, sense of collaboration and both, both with people from within inside their own companies, but also with suppliers and partners. And this is where I think the role of salespeople is going to sort of develop much more strongly, sort of moving into the future. Um, that the kind of skills that are going to be required of salespeople, given that there may be fewer opportunities, are going to be the more complex skills of problem solving, collaboration, co-creation. Um, so yeah, I think as a salesperson, how should you react to this? I think I think that salespeople, you know, need to kind of read the tea leaves. They they need to look for ways of adding more value to the conversations that they have with customers. They perhaps need to be slightly more. Um, the word is that's been used is disruptive. They perhaps need to be more proactively creative in the way that they. They suggest ideas to customers before they start uh, thinking of finding solutions to problems themselves. So mm. I think it's going to mean that sales are going to have to work harder, you know, to earn their their bonuses and their commission uh, because they're going to have to add a degree of uh, sort of intellectual acumen to the way in which they go about selling and not just wait for the orders to come in, but actually to go out there and find them and make things happen. Um, but I think those that do crack that particular code are going to be enormously successful. Um, yeah. I don't know if I've answered that question, but yeah, I think this is an interesting statistic, isn't it? It is interesting. And um, McKinsey came out with some interesting um, insight into what is the sort of how how customer expectations are changing and therefore what are the skill sets required for salespeople? Yeah. Um, and we've actually, you know, recently we did a podcast on that and it's, um, and it's interesting because customers' expectations are, are as such that they expect a salesperson to be a fantastic kind of problem solver and also, you know, have information to hand at their fingertips. Uh, because they're already coming into the conversation with a degree of knowledge around what it is you do. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of these kind of elements, I think, add to the, uh, the, the competency levels or what is expected for a salesperson. And I think that's going to become more and more um, complex and more specialized, perhaps. Yeah, no, I agree with you, um, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Be interesting to get... Um kind of uh, Philip's uh, viewpoint maybe on some of the trends that he's seen or whether the data that Gartner's kind of um, produced is consistent with Philip's experience because I know um, Philip you're very knowledgeable in this area so I'm putting you under the spot here 
That's okay. Can you can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, Philip, nice to speak to you again. Yes, likewise. Yeah. Um well I'm I'm just wondering how aligned that statistic is, in fact, with um the Forrester research on death of a B2B salesperson, because that was five years ago. And they were predicting that um people would be uh, if you were in that box of providing a more more of a transaction sale, then you basically your job was under threat. You had to get into the top right hand corner. Yeah. I can't remember what the axes were, but but uh, you had to be in that consultative piece. You had to be, as you say, spending more time helping the customers with more complex issues rather than the transactional. So it's really just played that out, and um, maybe that's that's what's reflected in that data, um, but. And it's interesting how our technology has definitely helped because I remember back in 2003, 2004, when, when we were first doing uh, remote selling uh, yeah. and the customers just weren't interested. Uh, and it was mm. really hard to get them to, um, to engage with our, our centralized uh, remote sellers. Mm. Uh, and in the end, we ended up allowing the sellers to actually go and visit these people once a quarter, which is sort of against the whole model of the th of the um, the principle, yes. but um, but now I think it, it it actually makes sense. Customers are quite happy to do that. It is much more around the transactional thing. The technology is there to support them, but it's the customers who are the key drivers for that. I think it's you know to what extent are they willing and able to be sold to through this this these mechanisms that are being developed through mm. leveraging the technology. Um, and, and COVID has obviously accelerated that process massively. Yeah. That's a key part of the change. Yes. Yes, I, I was um, uh, very surprised at um, work, not work data that we've seen from uh, some of our clients, uh, like you say, who've introduced the uh, sort of an inside sales role to to sell up to sort of half a million kind of euro dollar deals. And um, so anything above half a million would be dealt with by the field sales force, but anything below half a million. And to me, that seemed quite a high figure in, you know, to what extent are you able to uh, close quite, quite large value deals actually without any face-to-face -face contact? Um, I, was that the kind of scenario that you were just referring to, um, Philip, where you're know, talking about fairly large value deals? Um, yeah, absolutely. So inside sales team. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, back in 2003, 2004. It's a long it, time. That's 20 years ago. That's 20 years ago, but they were reasonably large deals, but but it was really hard to make that work. And there yeah. was massive resistance among clients. I don't think it happens now. I think, I think yeah. the other piece of research that is out there, I, I'm trying to remember who it comes from, is... The, the the fact that the greater propensity to buy um, virtually and, and be happy with that also comes with the caveat of there's a greater chance of buyer remorse um, and they'll regret the decision they made. So I, I can't remember what the stats say, but there is a significant oh, wow. increase in buyer remorse, which is which is aligned to that whole um, how interesting uh, remote buying. I think we should look into that. Um, that uh, will buy a remorse. Yeah, I think it's also a Gartner's yeah. Gartner stat. Um, okay, 
that's in the similar sort of study. Yeah. How interesting. I mean, what what I've also heard in in sort of connection with with the sort of role of inside sales and and I remember in the early days when uh, perhaps not twenty years ago, Philip, so you were starting this journey quite some time ago. Um, was was that um, sort of the, they went from this phase of it being a real struggle, like you say, to it now being more widely accepted by customers, but often the sale is supported by a channel partner. Um, so, uh, so they're not looking towards the um, necessarily the field salesperson working direct for the, say, manufacturer, but actually working much more with different channel support people in order to close some of these slightly more larger and more complex deals as well. And I think that kind of, in a way, that kind of makes sense economically, isn't it? Because the cost of actually sort of running very large sales forces is so high that working more effectively with channel partners in assisting some of the more complex sales kind of makes a lot of sense. I don't, I don't know whether you've had any experience of that, Phil, at all. I haven't had a lot of experience with channel partners, but I, I do know that it's an area where a lack of transparency and a lack of sharing of information really does mm. hint the whole process. Um, and so a reluctance either within an organization or with the partner, the reluctance to share what you know about something um, definitely holds you back. I think the, the good companies that were doing that, um, in my experience, were certainly the technology companies, surprisingly, would co collaborate with each other in order to sell to us at yeah. the company I was at. Uh, and they would share what they know about the organization. They'd have joint account plans for how they would they would they would bring ideas to us. Um, but I don't don't see everybody being as transparent. And I think transparency is key there. There's got to be an awful trust, obviously, when you're sharing yes. that, that information of yours. So there's uh, you, if we go right down to the fundamentals, trust, yeah, uh, transparency. That that culture has to be there. Uh, as the, as the bedrock for yeah. for greater uh, improved productivity and, and yeah. sharing. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. Will, so we come back to you unless you want to ask some more questions uh, around the topic. Or... Well, I'm just seeing Chat Lucas has said oh, that okay. um, he believes inside sales is just going to become huge over the next five years. Lucas, if you're there and can hear me, it'd be great to um, kind of understand what your perspective is. Absolutely. You know, thank you very much for amusing me. So I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a very, very interesting topic. And I think it's something that's very commonly spoken about, particularly in the last, you know, two to three years after the impact of the pandemic. Um, not only because people have changed in the respect that they might they sort of feel more comfortable speaking to people remotely. Um, but I think now people, people realize that actually getting, getting the time to, you know, have a salesperson in the building uh, and have all these discussions uses a lot of people's time. Mm. So I think what I find in, in my role in, in an inside sales team is that there's actually a lot of respondents, you know, people are very happy to speak to me online and it might be that you can kind of you can customize and, and tailor the experience to the customer. So 
if they've got a really important project that they're doing and they've got quite a complex facility, for example, it might be that you go and visit them for that sort of mm. introduction. You know, you touch, you touch palms, you shake hands, you introduce yourself. Um, but there is a lot of potential for um, almost solely online interaction um, from, from my experience. Yeah. Lucas, would you mind sharing which organization you're, you're working with and what your sort of role is? I work for a company called Siemens Digital Industries. So we're the industrial side of Siemens. You know, we're not necessarily the microwaves, the ovens that you may have heard of. Um, yes. We're more sort of anything that will automate a factory. That's fantastic. And you work at the moment in an inside sales role and you're on the, uh, I think, level six B2B apprenticeship uh, program, the sales apprenticeship. Certainly am. Yeah, that's great. So you see a strong future for inside sales. How, how does, do you mind me asking, you know, sort of up to what level of responsibility, you know, do you have in terms of deal sizes when you are sort of talking to customers? So, you know, I, I listened to um, that statistic earlier. I think somebody mentioned that inside sales might deal with deals up to half a million. So some of the size of the accounts that, um, I manage um, and, and sort of communicate with. They did big, you know, relatively big figures last year. You know, some well over, well over a million, well over two million, some projects. So it really depends on on sort of what they're doing um, okay. in in terms of what I'm I'm doing. But it really links to what the other point about sort of collaborating with other areas within your business, other integrators, yeah. other partners, um, and you know, it's almost a bit like a snowball. The more you uncovering the discovery phase mm. you know the more the more sort of will come with it but it can stay in inside sales um if that's something that we've developed as a team opportunity wise yeah very interesting well you've been sort of brought up in a way in, a, in an environment which is which has had to be inside sales hasn't it because we've not been able to go out and travel and visit you know customers until yeah. more recently and um and so, in a way, you know, this has been, the, am I right in saying this, perhaps the majority of your experience in sales has been in this sort of environment uh, so far. So you are naturally talented in this area, whereas those that haven't been used to it may be more you know, struggling to deal with this, this, this way of selling. I don't know how you see it, Lucas. I'll probably agree with that, actually, um, Phil. I think... Yeah, I, I actually don't really know any different than sort of online interaction other than the odd few customers that I might have visited for various different reasons or right at the early yeah. days of my apprenticeship when I'd perhaps go with another account manager to the shadow. Yes. Um, but predominantly, you know, I'd say probably 99% of the meetings that I've hosted or led with customers have been online. Um, so it, it is really sort of all I know, I guess, I think. When we started doing uh, video calls, I was actually still in sick form. So it's something that, right. you know, I've gone from being in a classroom trying to learn, you know, I don't know, psychology or, or business studies to actually using to uh, to develop business with customers. So mm -hmm. it is really uh, something that's almost sort of natural to me now. Yeah. It's great to have you on this session, Lucas. I, I, I You know, we need people at at every every level of sales, you know, from... Philip, how long have you been in sales for, Philip? <laughs> I, I suspect it's quite a long time. <laughs> well, since the day of faxes. 
<laughs> or before, be, I should say, before faxes. <laughs> That's right. I mean, we've seen quite a quite a bit of change, haven't we, Philip? Over the years. So, yeah. Uh, but we have these. Um, you know, it's just great to have these different perspectives on the on the AMA. Yeah. yeah. As well. Yeah. It's okay. interesting to see how kind of skills and competencies and expectations and and so forth changes over time from for a salesperson um yeah because i think as you know things progress so do the the you know the skills of sales people too yeah yeah and what's what's required okay well uh lucas do you have any questions for phil you're gonna put me on the spot lucas it's 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 great (laughs) actually so I was actually driving for the for the first half of this, and I was I was taking a little bit of a think about you know some some potential questions, right. and I didn't I didn't really know how big to go because obviously we've had some questions right at the start about how business is done in China. I thought you know I, I'm perhaps going to ask something more sort of I don't know what I'd call it micro sort of question in terms of I don't know stress in deal management for example. So yeah, I'd, I'd say one one question that I really thought of when I was driving, Phil, would probably I know it's probably quite a difficult one to answer. If you're amongst a team um, of you know other sales members, what do you think is something that you could recommend to sort of encourage sort of shared motivation and collaboration and sort of almost achieve one goal in the team, i.e. how do we sort of deal with people that want to pull different ways and have different sources of motivation? That's a it's a really good uh, question. I'd love to know why you want to ask the question. I mean, for me, I think one of the key areas for pulling people together is is around a strong sense of of purpose um, in a team. It's like what is the north star of the team, and it it you know this is probably something to do with maybe more um, a kind of leadership function but it, it doesn't have to be the leader it could be something that's collaboratively uh, collaboratively put together um, and we've seen examples of sometimes quite high performing teams go through periods where they've not been high performing and um, maybe even over a year uh, over a couple of years fall into a rather what's the word um slightly cynical kind of individualistic kind of approach to how they do business not not necessarily a particularly happy situation uh, to be in um and that there there are you know various techniques i think that could be deployed to try and switch people's mindsets into something that's that's more positive and more joined up now, one is having the sense of purpose and agreeing to that maybe collectively as a team. Another technique which which is so powerful because it's such a positive force of energy is is something that we call appreciative inquiry. I'm not sure if you cover that on level six, um, just as a methodology of being able to um, energize the best of what a team has and build on it to do something even better. And we've seen that that the the process. If you Google 
um, appreciative inquiry, you, you'll get the the kind of frameworks that support the very very simple frameworks. But um, we've seen, you know, we've seen these techniques used, and and back to what I think Philip was talking about, it sort of fosters a much more sort of collaborative, joined up energy around. Okay, how are we going to, you know, take uh, take this team forward? I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you can relate this also to, um, you know, to the, to the way a coach of a football team is able to take a team that's underperforming and completely, you know, transform its performance. I'm quite keen on cricket, which is probably not a sport that most people kind of link into. But if you start to look at what's happening to the English cricket team at the moment with the new coach, uh, Brendan McCullum, and uh, what Ben Stokes is doing, it's quite extraordinary. So you're getting this incredible performance out of basically the same players, um, but through a very different mindset and attitude. I think I think this, you know, mm. this is it. This is, uh, if you like, the secret uh, ingredient is is this ability to be able to get people to believe in themselves, to give people a sense of empowerment. And you can only really do it when people have got the right skills in place, you know. You, um, but uh, for me, there's, you know, sense of purpose, collaboration, appreciative inquiry. These are all tools um, that can help foster what we call a growth mindset, you know, too. And that would help. So I don't know, Lucas, if I've given you any, you know, a reasonable answer to that. But I was really glad for the question. Have I missed anything, Will? Is there anything I don't think so, Lucas. I, I really love that question. I think it, so many people can uh, relate to that. And I'm trying to think about the answer I would give as well, or if I could add anything to Phil. Um, and one, one thing we get taught in the Masters is around um, really trying to get a deep sense of understanding of everyone in your team um kind of understand what their perspectives are what their values are um understand the what we call the currencies as well you know what are the pressures that they're facing um because from a position of understanding um you can then start to kind of develop a more of a collaborative approach to what Phil has just described, you know, using tools like uh, appreciative inquiry or, or, or kind of working towards a, um, a collective purpose, I think is really, really powerful. But the, the thing I would, um, I would start off is um, just really get a sense of understanding. I wonder um, if we could direct the same question to, to Philip. Because I, I think Philip, you've had the benefit of working with large organisations and multiple sales teams. Um, do do you have anything you could share with with us when you know back to Lucas? I think all all your comments are spot on. I think it is mindset is is fundamental. Can the and the, and the manager is crucial to making that happen. And there are, there are. There are people who say a sales team is never actually a team. It's just a collection of individuals going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe to an extent it is, but but you, you have to give them that direction as you say that. You know, what is that? Mm -hmm. 
vision or the the general objective for them. And I think that's that's a critical leadership is critical in getting everybody to work together, setting the framework, agreeing the parameters, you know, know, the storming, norming, forming Mm. uh, approach, you know, what are the rules for this group of people to work together to be the the most effective they can be, whatever their ambition is, whether it's commission or promotion or just keep a job, you know, you you can cover all of those by by great leadership and, um, and, and, drive them in the same direction. So my mindset is fundamental, but it's the leader who's going to drive that. What are your thoughts, Lucas, on what's been shared back to you? I think, and obviously there's, there's a wealth of knowledge and, and different perspectives in this call alone. Mm. I think a lot of it we can think about in terms of, you know, simple breakdowns of, of human personality and psychology. You know, I'm sure many of you will have done um, a Myers-Briggs personality test and Within sales teams, you'll have people on every sort of area of that spectrum. And everybody's going to have a different sort of main source of motivation. People are going to react differently in conflict. People are going to change the way they behave, you know, all subconsciously. Um, But I think you're totally right in the respect that there needs to be some kind of establishment of of almost why everybody's in that group, you know, what, Mm. what, what defines the group and then having a leader that can drive and uh, and sort of empower everybody in, in the process, almost like planting a seed, like you said, Phil, to sort of foster a growth mindset. Yeah, I very much agree with all of that. Great. Yeah. How are we doing on the questions, Will? Uh, no, I think that's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. So Great. You, you survived your... Survived second, another, my know, second one of the year. Second one of the year. <laughs> so we'll organize another one for the end of March. But um, thank you, Philip and Lucas, for joining us. And yeah. we hope you found it's that useful great. or insightful. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a great week.